0: Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, 2 Corinthians, Strength and Weakness. Please open with me in your Bibles to... 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that's where we're picking up today as we continue our study through this book of the Bible. That's what we like to do here at Whitefields, like to study through books of the Bible. We're currently studying through 2 Corinthians, and we're picking up today in chapter 5, starting in verse 16. So as you turn there in your Bibles, would you please bow your heads with me, and let's pray as we open God's Word. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come to you thankful that you care about us enough to speak to us, to speak into our lives. And Lord, we want to have receptive hearts. We want to not only understand what your word says, Lord, we want to receive it and act upon it. And so we ask for the enlightening work of your Holy Spirit to help us to understand your word, to not just understand what it says, but what it means and how it applies to our lives. So Lord, we pray that you would do that, help us to understand, and help us to be transformed as we study your word today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, he was from Oregon, and she was from Pennsylvania, but they met in Ecuador. Um, They had both come there to help with a project that was seeking to translate the Bible into the language of the indigenous people in that area. And about a year and a half after they met, uh, Jim and Elizabeth, they got married. And another year later, they had their first child, a daughter named Valerie. And Jim and Elizabeth, they had both dedicated their lives to serving God and helping people. They're both skilled linguists. And as they worked there with the local Quechua people, they talked to them. And what they found out was that there was another tribe in the area that the Quechua people, called the Auka people. And Auka in the Quechua language meant savages because these people were famous for their antisocial attitudes and behaviors. They were violent towards outsiders. And so Jim was curious about the Auka people. He began to learn some basic phrases in their language. And he assembled a team, and they began to try to make some kind of soft initial contact with the Alka people with the hope that maybe there would be an opportunity in the future to meet them and eventually to share the love of Jesus and the hope of the gospel with those people. So they started out by going to the area where the Alka lived and leaving gifts for them, leaving photographs so that the people would recognize them when they came. And one day, a man from the Alka tribe came out and spent the entire day with them. And they felt like things were going pretty well. Well, a few days later, 10 leaders from the Alka tribe came out to meet them on the bank of the river where they were camped out. And Jim greeted them in the Alka language, in their own language. And what he said was, I like you, and I want to be your friend. But the Alka people did not share that same sentiment. They killed Jim right there on the spot, along with all of his four companions. And uh, by doing so, they robbed Elizabeth of her husband. They robbed Valerie of her father. And so in the wake of her husband's killing, uh, Elizabeth took her daughter, and they went to the safety of the United States so they could grieve and figure out what was next for them in their next stage of life. Now, the killing of these missionaries in Ecuador was national news here in the United States at the time. There's a 10-page article written in Life magazine. There were speaking engagements that opened up for Elizabeth. She was even offered a book contract. And yet, in spite of taking those opportunities, Elizabeth chose instead to go back to Ecuador to finish out the Bible translation project that she had been working on with Jim before he died. But then, two years after arriving back in Ecuador, two years after Jim had been killed, Elizabeth did something that nobody had expected. She went back to the place where Jim had been killed, and back to the people who had killed him, and she made contact with the Auka people. During those two years that she had been back in Ecuador, she had taken it upon herself to learn the Auka language, and now with her three-year-old daughter in tow, Elizabeth Elliot, also joined by the sister of one of those men who had been killed, they introduced themselves to the Auka people. They said, I'm the wife of one of the men that you killed, and this is his daughter. This woman is the sister of one of the men you killed. And we've come back to you because in spite of what, we, what you did, we want you to know that we don't hate you. We forgive you, and we want to be your friends, and we have a message for you. Well, from that point on, Elizabeth set up camp in the Alka's territory, and she began living among them. And through that process, these women were actually able to share with the Alka people the reason why they were able to forgive them for what they had done to their family members, and why they actually cared about them, and what the message was that they had come to bring them. And as a result, the Alka people became Christians, including the men who had killed Jim and his companions. And that's the reason, by the way, why we know what happened on that fateful day when Jim died, because the very man who killed him told Elizabeth what happened, and he himself became a Christian. Not only did Elizabeth forgive her husband's murderers, but she was reconciled to them, you see? Rather than being enemies, they became friends. And even more than friends, they became family. And they were both now children of God through faith in Jesus. And as the Alka people came to know and follow Jesus, their lives were transformed. Their way of life changed. They laid down their weapons. They laid down their hostilities. And actually beyond that, they began reaching out to the other tribes that they had previously been at war with, seeking reconciliation and telling them about Jesus. And several of these formerly warring tribes were reconciled and reunited as a result of becoming Christians. You know, they say that revenge is sweet, but I've never actually met somebody who believes that, who's experienced that in reality. Jesus gives us a different way. Rather than revenge, Jesus tells us to leave the judgment up to him, and he calls us instead to forgive those who sin against us, to love our enemies, to bless those who hurt us. And all of those things, they go absolutely contrary to our natural inclinations and natural desires. I'm sure each and every one of you could tell stories of people who have hurt you deeply, perhaps personally. And you know, when that happens, what, what, what's natural is to want to hurt them back. What's natural is at least, at minimum, to hold a grudge or to harbor resentment. So what could possibly Motivate a person to do what Elizabeth Elliot did, to not only forgive those who hurt her, but to seek reconciliation and even to bless them. The answer is found in this passage, which we're looking at today, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. The title of today's message is The Ministry of Reconciliation. Here's what we're going to see in our passage. This is kind of our summary statement, and I'd love it if you'd write it down. It'll also function as our outline and our guide as we work our way through this text today. So here's what it is. God's grace in reconciling us to himself gives us a new outlook, a new essence, and a new calling. So one more time, God's grace in reconciling us to himself gives us a new outlook, a new essence, and a new calling. Let's break that down, and let's use it as our guide for studying through these verses here. So the first part of this, God's grace in reconciling us to himself. Let's pick up in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Now this book, Second Corinthians, this is a letter that was written by Paul the Apostle to the Christians who lived in the Greek city of Corinth. And in this section of the letter, Paul specifically is sharing with the Corinthians and with us what is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. You see, even though there were these people in Corinth, even though many of them went to church and called themselves Christians, they were at the same time kind of not really getting the point of what it means to be a Christian. That, that shouldn't be terribly surprising to us. I mean, the same thing happens today. There are people who go to church, maybe identify as Christians, but that doesn't always necessarily mean that they fully grasp or understand the essence of what it means to be a Christian. Some of the people there in Corinth had developed what we might call a self-righteous attitude, kind of a judgmental approach to other people. That Some of those folks in Corinth, they began to kind of as they became religious people, they began to look down on others and consider themselves to be better than other people. I think it's actually a common thing and perhaps even a a, a temptation that we face when you start getting serious about pursuing God, right? When you start going to church, let's say, maybe reading your Bible, and, and you start bringing your life into alignment with what God says, his will and his plan, and that's all good. But see, what can happen if you're not careful is that you can actually develop a sense of self-righteousness. You know, Jesus told a story about a man who went up to the temple to pray he said, this man went up to the temple to pray, and he found a spot that was very visible right in the middle of everybody, this kind of corner. And he stood up on this corner, and he began to pray aloud so everybody could hear him and everybody could see him. And what he prayed was, thank you, God, that I am not like other people. You know the types, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like Like that tax collector over there. The tax collector's like, bro, I can hear you. I'm right here. Like, what is this? And he says, thank you, God. I'm better than these people. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And Jesus speaks into that. He says, listen, that's not praying. That's bragging right? That's not prayer. It's bragging. And Jesus says, and you know what? God takes offense at that kind of self-righteous attitude. And Jesus says there in Luke 18, he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so what Paul the apostle is doing here in this section of this letter to the Corinthians, he's reminding them what is at the heart of the Christian faith. And he's telling us, listen, the hope that we have in Jesus is not that God blesses those who are worthy of it. The hope of the gospel is also not that if you follow Jesus, God will give you or guarantee you an easy and problem-free life. No, the hope of the gospel is something much better than that. The heart of the Christian faith is that God loves, blesses, and saves people who are not worthy and that's great news for you and me, let me tell you, because otherwise we would not qualify. Uh, but this way, if God loves, blesses, and saves the unworthy, in that case, there is hope for you and for me. We do qualify for that. And the hope of the gospel is that because of what Jesus did for you, no matter what this life might throw at you, there is an eternal home that awaits you with God where things will be right and where there will be fullness of joy forevermore. And so now, here in verse 16, Paul begins, look at what he says. He says, from now on, therefore, in other words, that therefore, it it means that what he's about to say is a conclusion that we should make based on what he said prior to this. Furthermore, he says, from now on which means that something has happened that changes everything from this point moving forward. So what is it? What is this thing that has happened that changes everything from here on out? Well, look at the previous verse. Look at verse 15, which tells us this. It tells us that Jesus died and resurrected. But notice, perhaps even more importantly in this case, why did he die and resurrect? He didn't just do it for his own sake, it says. He did it for our sakes, for our benefit. Now, you might ask the question, how could it possibly be for our benefit that Jesus died and resurrected? I mean, how can another man's life, especially someone who lived a long time ago, How can that benefit me? How can someone else's death, someone's resurrection, benefit me living today? Well, Paul's going to answer that question for us in this section here at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's just look at it, and then we'll consider the implications. So look with me, if you will, at verse 18. Paul says this, all this, meaning this work of God's grace, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Then in verse 19, he says, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God's grace towards us, described here. It uses the word reconciliation to describe what God has done for us. Now, how many of you have ever experienced a reconciliation in your life? Reconciliation is what happens when two people who were formerly estranged from one another are reunited. Reconciliation is what happens when people who were enemies become friends once again. see, reconciliation is more than just forgiveness. If someone hurts you and you forgive them, that doesn't necessarily mean that your relationship has been reconciled or restored. You might say, I forgive you, but our relationship can't go back to what it was before. But reconciliation is more than just forgiveness, reconciliation is the restoration of a broken relationship. And I want you to notice what it says about who is the one who does this work or performs this work of reconciliation. It says in verse 18 that it was all God. He reconciled us to himself. Verse 19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It also tells us in verse 19 why we needed to be reconciled to God in the first place. and It says it was because of our trespasses. Now, how many of you have seen a sign before that says, no trespassing? To trespass means that you crossed a line that you weren't supposed to cross. It means you went somewhere that you weren't supposed to go. And so for us, to trespass means that you crossed the line. You went somewhere or you did something where you shouldn't have gone or that you shouldn't have done. And God is our creator. He gives us guidelines for our lives, things that are right, things that are wrong. And he says, I want you to do the things that are right and not do the things that are wrong. And the reason he gives us those guidelines and rules is not because he just has nothing better to do, right? It's not that these are just like arbitrary rules, like he's sitting up there bored and says, I guess I'll just make up some meaningless rules for these people to follow. The the reason God gives us rules is because he knows What will be the long-term consequences for us and for others if we do certain actions? And so our transgressions are the ways in which we have sinned against God and against others, either in word or in deed, either in action or in inaction. And it should come at no surprise to us, by the way, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. That should be no surprise. We ourselves admit it all the time, don't we? We say things like, hey, nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes. But the thing we have to realize is that these mistakes we make, they aren't just bad habits. They aren't just an oops every now and then. These transgressions actually have an impact on our relationship with God. For example, look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah explains, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, His ear is not dull that it cannot hear. But here's the problem. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. You see, the effect of our actions and attitudes, our transgressions, is that they lead to an estrangement from God. In Ephesians chapter 2, it's described as a wall of hostility that stands between us and God. What a picture that is. A wall of hostility. The effect of our sins on our relationship with God. They create a barrier between us and God. He is holy, we are unholy. He is righteous, and we are unrighteous. But again, as if that weren't bad enough, as if it wasn't bad enough that there's a wall of hostility between you and God, the situation's actually even worse than that, if we want to be completely honest and completely accurate. Because here's the issue. God describes himself as a righteous judge. And he says that one day he will come to judge the living and the dead. And he says beyond that, that he will by no means clear the guilty And he says that the soul that sins will surely die, which creates quite a big problem for us since we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and God's standards, not just multiple times in our lives, but usually multiple times in a day, right? And so here's the incredible message of the gospel that Paul's communicating to us here once again so clearly. It's that God initiated and accomplished all of the actions necessary in order for us to be reconciled to him. He did it, right? It wasn't 50-50. It wasn't meet me in the middle, It wasn't that he did his part. Now we need to do our part to fix this broken relationship. Rather, we're the ones who caused the problem, and yet he has come in order to fix it. He reconciled us to himself. He did it in the person of Jesus. But how did he do it? Look at verse 19. It says, by not counting our trespasses against us. Now, if we were just to take that verse in isolation, it might be confusing, right? Because we might say, Wait a second. So he's just going to not count it against us? How is that? Didn't you just say that he's going to by no means clear the guilty? Does that mean that God just like ignored everything he said prior to that? He's just going to ignore our sins, turn a blind eye, pretend it never happened. Just say, eh, never mind. No big deal. Uh, Never mind that stuff I said earlier. Don't worry about it. All good. Uh, like in the past, he seemed pretty upset about this, right? And, and now he's just brushing it all under the, under the carpet, pretending it never happened? Listen, if God could do that, then what was all that talk about being a righteous judge? What was all that talk about by no means clearing the guilty? Was that just blowing smoke and making empty threats and big words? And if that was the case, let me ask you this, then why didn't he just do it earlier? Why wait all this time until Jesus comes around to start forgiving people? If you can just, you know, wave your hand and pretend like nothing happened. And here's why. Because it isn't that God just chose to ignore our sins and pretend that they never happened. To do so would actually compromise an essential element of who he is and his nature and character. It would mean that he's no longer just. You see, justice means giving someone what they deserve for what they've done and so in order for God to be just, someone has to pay the price for the wrong things that have been done. And so it isn't that God just ignored our sins or pretended they never happened. Rather, here's what we're told in verse 21, the explanation of how this is possible. It says, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. This is an incredible message here. I want to just let's slow down and, and consider it. Look at it one more time. For our sake, first of all, God did this for us. He, God, made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin. So Jesus, the only person who ever lived a life that was free of sin, a life perfectly pleasing to God, he was tempted in all the same ways that you and I are tempted, and yet he didn't give in. He was without sin, without blemish, without fault. Even though he was tempted, he did not sin, and yet it says God made him to be sin. That's interesting. You see, Jesus, having lived without sin, he was made to be sin. Here's what's so cool about this phrase that word there, sin, in Greek, it's the word hamartia, right? And so hamartia, it's the same word that was used in the Greek language for the sacrifice that was made by the Jewish people to atone for their sins. In the Greek language, that sacrifice the Jewish people would present periodically to atone for their sins before God, it was called hamartia, Hamartia, which means sin. And so the idea here, Jesus became that. The idea was when you would make that sacrifice, your sins would be transferred from you onto that sacrifice. That sacrifice, in essence, became your sin. So rather than you being slaughtered and burned, the sacrifice was slaughtered and burned in your place for your sins. And although Jesus never sinned, as he hung upon the cross, he became Hamartia, the sacrifice to atone for sins. All of my sins, all of your sins, were placed by God upon him And he paid the price for the wrong things that you and I have done. And this is why on the cross, Jesus cried out in agony. It wasn't just the agony of physical pain. In a much greater way, it was the agony of suffering the judgment for the sins of the world. This is why Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was experiencing the judgment that we deserve in our place. But remember, as Jesus died on the cross. Remember what it says in verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It says in verse 18 that all of this was from God. In other words, Jesus wasn't a a patsy, right, who was forced by his father to go and suffer for others in some kind of like divine child abuse situation. Rather, Jesus is God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. All of this from beginning to end is the work of God, right? In the person of Jesus, God came to us to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to live a truly righteous life and to die in order that he would take the judgment for our sins that the judgment for our sins would fall upon him and not on us. And in this way, God's justice was satisfied in judging sin, and yet he could be merciful without having to compromise or choose between the two. And the end result, it says, is that we become the righteousness of God in him. So he became sin so that we could become righteousness. It's as if he took his perfect report card and your failing report card. And he took the two and scratched out the names on the top, wrote your name on his report card and his name on your report card, and then put them back in the in the official file so that when they're pulled out later, right, on that day of judgment, when God pulls up your file, it will say righteous. You see, on the cross, Jesus took what we deserved. And in exchange, we get what only he deserved. That's the message of God's grace. You see, if justice means getting what you deserve and mercy means not getting the judgment that you deserve, grace is about receiving a gift that is undeserved. So you might say, why would God do that? Well, throughout the Bible, we're told over and over, it's because God loves you. That's why he did it. Now that begs the question, how should we then respond? What does this mean for our lives practically, and Paul's going to answer that question for us in these verses, so let's look at that. Let's look at the implications because of this is true. God's grace in reconciling us to himself it gives us a new outlook. That's the first thing, gives us a new outlook. Look again at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. The effect that the grace of God has on us, it caused us to have a whole new outlook, a new outlook on life. But specifically, Paul is talking here about it caused us to have a new outlook on people. Here in 2 Corinthians, Paul's been talking about, and he'll continue to talk about, how the grace of God, the gospel, gives us a whole new outlook on life. But here specifically, he's talking about how what God has done for us in Jesus changes our outlook on other people. He says we no longer regard them according to the flesh. To regard someone according to the flesh, it means to think about a person without any consideration for their soul for their soul, right? So I can look at somebody and say, oh, she's wealthy, or, or uh, she's smart, or he's annoying, or he's successful. But what happens when you come to understand and experience the grace of God is that it causes you to begin to see people in a new way with spiritual eyes. You begin to look at people not just according to their physical condition, but according to their spiritual state that person at work who annoys you, you begin to see her differently. You begin to see her as a person who needs Jesus, right? That friend of yours who drinks too much, you realize he's not just somebody who likes to party. He's somebody who has a void in his soul that only Jesus can fill. That neighbor who's depressed, you realize this is a person who needs the hope that can only be found in Jesus. And as you walk through your neighborhood, as you go through the grocery store and you see all the people around you, you begin to realize that these are people whom God loves, people for whom Jesus died, These are people with souls who have an eternal destiny. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his his famous work, The, The Weight of Glory. Here's what he said. He says, what this means is that there are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. So that means that we must take each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Paul says here in verse 16, we even used to regard Jesus according to the flesh, but we don't do that any longer either, right? Prior to being a Christian, Paul just thought of Jesus as just another human being, now he realizes that Jesus was so much more than that. And here's the point. When you come to understand what God has done for you, when you come to appreciate it, it causes you to think differently about other people. You begin to realize that just as God loves you, he loves them as well. As just as Jesus gave his life so that you could be saved and reconciled to him, that's true for other people in the world as well. Now, the next thing it does for us, not only does it give us a new outlook, but the grace of God towards us and reconciling us to himself, it also gives us a new essence. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. To be a Christian doesn't just mean that God has forgiven you of your sins. It means that, but it means more than that. It means that he has made you into a whole new person. He's changed your status, but he's actively changing you at the core of your being, your nature, the essence of who you are. And listen, he's not just making you into a better version of yourself. He's making you into a whole new creation, like how a caterpillar is transformed into a butterfly. And as a new creation, you're part of this new work that God is doing in which he is ultimately going to make all of creation new, liberating it from bondage to sin and and death and making it into this beautiful new creation which will last for eternity. And therefore, as new creations, it wouldn't make any sense at all for you to go on living just as you did before before you were changed and transformed by God's redeeming grace. As new creations, it behooves us to set aside the old habits and the old ways and to walk in this new life that God has given us. Listen, butterflies get to do butterfly stuff. Once you become a butterfly, don't go back to doing caterpillar stuff. That'd be weird. Spread your wings and fly. Do the butterfly stuff that you can do now. With this new life comes a new power and to walk in this new way. So like changing your clothes, right? You put off the old, and you put on the new. You put off the old way of life that you had before God regenerated you and transformed you. You put on the new way of life that is yours now as a new creation in Christ Jesus. And that brings us to the final part of what this grace of God does for us. It gives us a new outlook, a new essence, finally, a new calling. Not only has God reconciled us to himself, but look at verse 18. It says this, but also he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, he has entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. So this reconciliation, it isn't just a grace that we receive. It's also a ministry that we're called to carry out. And it's a message that we're called to share A ministry is something that you do on God's behalf. And the ministry is to share the message of what God has done to reconcile people to himself. And in order for people to be reconciled to God, apparently they need to hear about it and they need to respond to God's invitation to be reconciled to him. God is the one who does the work, but we must receive it. So that's what Paul says here in verse 20. Look at that. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Listen, just as a king would send an ambassador to represent his kingdom or to communicate his message, we are called to be ambassadors for Christ in this world. Jesus isn't here in person for people to meet him or to hear from him, but he's commissioned us to be his ambassadors You see, an ambassador is a representative. More than just a messenger, they're a representative. The honor and the reputation of their country is in their hands. And so as Christians, we remember that. We want to conduct ourselves in word and in deed in a way that is worthy of the gospel. We want to do so in a way that accurately reflects the heart of Jesus for people, in a way that never brings derision upon the way of Jesus And notice what ambassadors do for Christ. He says this, on behalf of Jesus, we implore you. Be reconciled to God. You know what implore means, right? It means to plead with someone earnestly, passionately, desperately. It's a matter of life and death. Isn't this incredible? that God would send us to plead with people to receive the reconciliation that he provided for them. I could imagine and I could understand if God were to just to, to set up a way for people to be saved and say, there it is. If you want it, take it or leave it. I don't care. Whatever. I've already done it. If you don't want it, that's on you. But instead, God, who has already done everything in this equation, he now sends out representatives to plead with people. That's you and me. To plead with people to receive his grace. This shows us that God is not dispassionate. He is not uncaring. He is not aloof. He is not indifferent about the fate of your soul or the fate of other people's souls. Rather, he desperately desires for you to be reconciled to him and to be redeemed. He's done everything to make it possible. And all it takes is for you to receive his grace by faith today. All it takes is for you to stop resisting God and say yes to his grace, to his plan for your life, which is for your good. Yes to taking his hand and walking with him. And as you do that, understand, as you do that, the wall of hostility that existed between you and God, it's removed And instead, you become clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now, when God looks at you, he says about you what he said about Jesus. This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. So let me ask you today, have you been reconciled to God? Have you received the gift of his grace through faith in what Jesus did for you? If not, I am imploring you right now, to do so today. If you have, if you say, I've, I've already done that, then I want to encourage you and challenge you, in light of what we just read, in this coming week, to look at people around you in regard to their spiritual condition, no longer according to the flesh, but according to their spiritual condition. I want to challenge you to live as a new creation in Christ and to act as an ambassador for Jesus to those you meet. God's grace in reconciling us to himself, it gives us a new outlook, a new essence, and a new calling. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.